Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm William Rogerberg, a member of VAEA. Your support in any amount makes Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. Hi, I'm Ann Habel, a retired member of AFSME Local 171. This week, we'll hear how pay discrimination is alive and well for certain teachers in the Verona Area School District. Find out more about the legislative map process in Wisconsin. Discuss a recent GOP move against Volces de la Frontera and much more. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. A coalition of UW-Madison workers and students has challenged the university's COVID policy as unsafe and took action earlier this week. Greg Jabowski reports. At the University of Wisconsin-Madison resumed this week and to the dismay of many UW workers and students with a system of full in-person classes rather than distance learning in place. On Monday, the day before classes were to start, more than a dozen workers representing unions on campus, joined by concerned students, stood in front of the door of UW Chancellor Rebecca Blank with a series of demands, the most urgent being a call for a moratorium on in-person classes during a time when COVID numbers are surging in Wisconsin and Dane County. Adrian George, co-president of the Teaching Assistance Association, the TAA, explained why they were there. We are here delivering our demands to Chancellor Becky Blank. There's six different demands. The first and most urgent one is two weeks of remote instruction because we are at record high COVID cases and hospitalizations in Dane County. And in-person instruction will only make that worse. When it became clear that the workers and students were not going to leave, three representatives of the UW administration appeared and addressed the group. Labor Radio asked Plank's chief of staff, Matt Merrill, if the administration had met representatives of the university's union to formulate this year's COVID policy. The answer appeared to be no. I know we hosted a town hall for all uh, students and staff uh, last Friday where a number of questions were addressed on this and we described our, our planning process. Nothing specifically with workers or the unions? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm just, t- you asked for a question about the COVID planning process and how it was done. Right. That was, the, that's probably the best forum and crystallization of how uh, both were addressing the, the current public health issues and the planning process. Do, do, you, do you know of any meetings with uh, workers or the unions to address policies? Uh, whether, they, I mean, whether they've had it all, it happened at all. Well, I mean, I personally meet with uh, leaders from our shared governance, employee, faculty and staff and university staff on a regular basis. George was more direct. They have not reached out to us or worked with us this year and I believe for longer on the pandemic-related safety measures. Harry Richardson was there from ASME Local 171, representing blue-collar workers on campus. 
And we're here in solidarity with the other folks of the University Labor Council and all the workers on campus. We want the chancellor to allow distance learning, to make accommodations for people with special health concerns. We think it's disgraceful that the university has been treating us with so much disrespect and invisibility. It is not only workers who felt ignored. A number of representatives of past and current Wisconsin student government were there in support of the action. None knew of student government representatives being asked for direct input into the UW COVID policy. Also there was Ashley Chung, a member of the Black, Indigenous, and People of Color, or BIPOC coalition. I'm here today because as an undergraduate student, I have seen firsthand the effects that the just subpar and performative response to COVID, I've seen the effects of that on fellow students and how that's taken a toll on their physical and mental health. And it is the university's responsibility to make sure that all students can access their education safely and adequately, especially the people who don't necessarily have historic access, such as black indigenous and people of color and people with disabilities and people who are not necessarily the normal, quote unquote, able, quote unquote, people part of this community. Jack Phillips is the TAA Political Education Committee chair and also a graduate student in biomedicine. They asked pointed questions of the administrators asking for specifics on testing, treatment, community resources, the effect on the less abled, and expected big number effects of opening up the campus. Labor Radio asked Phillips how they interpreted the administration response to them. All I heard was, we talked to the hospital. Okay, what do they say? Do they approve? Do they think that there's going to be a big spike? Are you doing anything to mitigate uh, like the worst case scenarios? Have you identified have you identified any metrics that you're watching that you'll be like, okay, well, once hospitalizations reach this level, we're going to go online because we don't want to risk people's lives anymore or we don't want to take up hospital capacity anymore. These are all questions that I would love to follow up with to the simple non-answer of, we talked to the hospital. Despite the action, UW-Madison opened to regular in-person classes on Tuesday. Workers and students have pledged to continue to organize for what they see as a needed, more rational and safer response to the COVID crisis from UW-Madison Administrators for Labor Radio. I'm Greg Jabosky. Nine special education caseworkers and a school psychologist in Verona Area School District learned this week that the United States Equal Employment Opportunity Commission is going forward with pay discrimination charges against the school district. Here's Labor Radio reporter Ellen Lung-Zerne with a story. A group of female special education teachers and a school psychologist in the Verona Area School District received a shock during salary discussions a couple of years ago. Those teachers found they were being paid anywhere from $3,000 to $17,000 less than their male co-worker. Earlier this week, those underpaid employees learned that the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC, is pursuing charges against the school district. The EEOC's lawsuit arose out of actions taken by the Verona Area Education Association, or VAEA, the union that represents the district's employees. Mindy Doris, Uniserve Director from WEAC Region 6, and Special Education Caseworker Sarah Greenlaw spoke with me about the case. Sarah, what was your reaction when you found out the news that you were so underpaid? Extreme frustration. And when you heard the news about EEOC, how did you react to that? (laughs) I believe I started to cry. It's been a very long road. And I think I 
have sort of set myself up for each little milestone we've made. I've set myself up that it's really not going to happen. Mindy, can you briefly describe how the case came about? This is absolutely the result of Act 10 and the loss of real collective bargaining in the state. We know that prior to 2011, there was no gender pay gap, and we have seen an absolute explosion in the gender pay gap since that loss of collective bargaining. But we know these cases exist in just about every school district across the state, and we need a return to collective bargaining so teachers have a voice at the table in developing full, fair salary schedules. How did you find out about this pay disparity? The VAEA bargaining team deserves a ton of credit. We found the salary discrepancies at the start of bargaining when we requested salary data for all teachers in the district. And the bargaining team in going through the data found really absolutely outrageous discrepancies, $17,000 pay differences between a woman and a man with equal qualifications doing the same work. What are the next steps in the process? Well, we're really waiting to hear from the EEOC and from the district next steps. I think our hope is that there will be a settlement. That's been our hope. So we're hopeful the district will work with the EEOC to settle the case for these 10 teachers and to continue to collaborate with the union to prevent this kind of thing from happening in the future. And we're also hopeful that that collaboration will be a model that other school districts adopt willingly. Because we know that if this is happening in Verona, it's happening everywhere else. And our teachers deserve better. Our students deserve better. Are there any questions you think I should have asked you about? You know, these 10 women are educational experts. They all have master's degrees. Many of them are nationally board certified. They have decades of experience in the classroom. The headline is sort of EEOC, right? We want to make sure it's also union. But I also think it's really important for people to understand the sort of quality educator and experience that was absolutely devalued because these educators happen to be women. This whole time, devalued is the word that she said. And I would say that that is just smack on because all of these years, as we've trundled along in this case, we continue to work knowing the whole time that there's a male getting thousands of dollars more than what I'm getting. It's a sucker punch. We want to emphasize, but it's about equal pay for equal work and making sure these women with the same qualifications, with in many cases more experience, they are worth just as much and should be paid just as much as their male colleagues. It's what VAEA and WEAC and unions are all about. Thank you so much. And that was Mindy Doris, uh, Uniserve Director from WEAC Region 6, and Sarah Greenlaw, Special Education Caseworker from the Verona Area School District. I'm Ellen Lalazern for Labor Radio. League of Women Voters of Wisconsin Executive Director Deborah Cronmiller explains legislative maps in Wisconsin. 
Redistricting happens every 10 years after the completion of the census. Each district by statute and law has to be correctly apportioned to give one vote to each voter. Obviously, there are some communities of interest that are too large. City of Madison just has too many people in it to have one district. So we need to have many districts and we need to figure out, and the city does this with the use of a commission to actually determine how best within the city, what neighborhoods should remain intact. Municipalities create maps that incorporate the wards in their district or even just their ward if it's a small municipality. Those municipal maps then go to a county. A county then apportions its maps depending on what the state numbers are. And what went wrong in the 2010 census cycle was that the integrity of those municipal recommendations was lost. The legislature was able to craft legislative district lines and Senate lines to ensure that the legislative majority at that time would be preserved over the course of the next 10 years and all the elections in those 10 years. They did that in practice by disturbing those natural municipal boundaries. Beloit, for instance, which has a significant population of people of color, that the choice candidate would actually have been a person of color. But what the 2011 map did was break Beloit into three different assembly districts, diluting the actual population of color in Beloit by grabbing out some of the outer, more rural Beloit areas. And ultimately, we did not get any uh, person of color elected from any of those three districts. How do the local districts fit into, let's say, the assembly or the Senate districts? Historically, the smallest units of government drew their wards and then rolled up to the county, the county rolled up to the statewide maps, the statewide maps rolled up to the federal maps. They enacted another piece of legislation in 2011, which was called Act 39. And this law turned the process that had been used on its head and basically said, if the legislature adopts maps that don't conform to those communities of interest at the municipal level. It's the municipality that needs to go back and draw its maps. Historically, it was always the legislature who had accepted and built upon the municipal maps. So Act 39 made it legal for the legislature to create gerrymandered maps, as they do. So when we're talking about gerrymandering in general, um, the lines that seem of most concern are the state assembly lines, the state senate lines, and the U.S. congressional lines, correct? Correct. And those are the maps that the Supreme Court in Wisconsin is looking at right now. Those are the maps that need to be decided by April 1st when candidates can pull their nomination papers because we need to know who the electors are in each of those districts. That was Deborah Cronmiller from the League of Women Voters of Wisconsin, and this is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio. 
An alleged investigative commission set up by Wisconsin Republicans has taken aim at a leading immigrant rights organization. Greg Jabosky interviews an attorney challenging that move. In 2021, the Republican-controlled Wisconsin State Assembly authorized over half a million dollars to pay Michael Gableman to, it said, investigate the results of the 2020 presidential election between Donald Trump and Joseph Biden, an election won by Biden. On January 5th, Gableman issued a wide-ranging subpoena directed against Voces de la Frontera Action, the political action arm, or so-called 501c4, of the Milwaukee-based immigrants' rights organization Voces de la Frontera. Richard Sachs is a Milwaukee-based attorney and a member of the board of the 501c3 Voces. He has filed a suit against Gableman and his subpoena on behalf of Voces de la Frontera Action. Sachs explains why. In January, Voces received the subpoena from Special Counsel Michael Gableman seeking a very wide array of documents related to the 2020 election election, essentially asking for pretty much anything, any any and all documents that are related to the 2020 election. A huge mountain of documents and materials that VOSIS has, including, you know, members and voters and lots of, you know, confidential information. We looked a little more carefully into it, and we believe that there's really no basis for the special counsel for the assembly to seek this kind of information. Labor Radio asked Sachs what he saw as Gableman's motivation. We can only speculate. Their asserted motive is to, quote-unquote, investigate 2020 elections. But, you know, we think that is totally, you know, erroneous. There was no fraud in elections, and we believe that this is pure and simple harassment. In Assembly Resolution 15, the legislative document that authorized Special Counsel Gableman to, quote-unquote, investigate the elections, there is no authority given to the Special Counsel to investigate private parties. The resolution really only authorized Gableman to investigate election administration and government officials. And VOSIS, if it's a private entity, it has no role in the administration of elections. Sachs sees the Gableman Commission as part of a larger effort by Republicans to undermine the electoral process. Well, we would hope that, you know, all, all voters and your listeners would um, support our effort to beat back the subpoena, that it represents nothing more than an effort by a right-wing Republicans to continue to undermine and overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. They have no basis in law to continue to harass and subject organizations like VOSIS to this type of repressive and burdensome activities. That was attorney Richard Sachs. In other Gableman subpoena news, that commission had earlier issued a massive subpoena to the Wisconsin Elections Commission, which the Election Commission then challenged. A Dane County District Court judge allowed that challenge to go through, but Gableman's commission appealed that ruling. Sachs has filed a motion for VOSIS to intervene on behalf of the Wisconsin Elections Commission, citing similar facts to the subpoena issued to them. The hearing on the VOSIS motion on behalf of the Elections Commission will be heard in Dane County District Court on Wednesday. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. This week's COVID report includes reporting on national trends in cases and deaths. Wisconsin nursing homes recently passed two grim milestones in the COVID-19 pandemic. The first concerned the weekly total of residents dying from COVID-19 viral infection. 20 residents died during the week ending January 16th, and 19 died during the week ending this past Sunday, January 23rd. Given that there are 18,000 Wisconsinites living in Wisconsin nursing homes at any point in time, these numbers may seem trivial. However, 
They each are higher than for any other time since the week ending February 21st, 2021. The second milestone was the weekly count of confirmed COVID-19 cases in Wisconsin nursing homes. As of the week ending Sunday, January 16th, this total reached 421, the highest total since December of 2020. While this total declined roughly 10% in the following week, it remains a clear warning that the Omicron variant is not benign. Even if it is less lethal than the Delta variant, it is still highly contagious and dangerous to the elderly and other immunologically compromised Wisconsinites. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor. Activism Blizzard, the parent company of Middleton-based Raven Software, has foregone voluntarily recognizing a union that was seeking representation among its employees. We'll hear an update on the workers' campaign. 34 quality assurance employees at Raven Software, a subsidiary of game production company Activision Blizzard, and located in Madison's Middleton suburb, will be filing for a formal union election with the National Labor Relations Board in the upcoming weeks. If the union drive is successful, the tech workers would be represented under the title Game Workers Alliance as an affiliate of the Communications Workers of America. The 34 members of the GWA had given Raven Software and Activision Blizzard until 6 p.m. Eastern time this Tuesday to voluntarily recognize the union before filing for an election. The deadline passed without a response from either company. Before the deadline for voluntary recognition had passed, QA employees were pulled into a series of meetings Monday afternoon where they were informed that they would be split from a single quality assurance department and scattered among the respective development departments they were testing for. Some of the workers organizing with the CWA identified this reorganization as an attempt by Raven to dilute support for the union drive and isolate employees from coordinating their actions. The CWA sent a statement Tuesday claiming the meetings were, quote, nothing more than a tactic to thwart Raven QA workers who are exercising their right to organize, end quote. The studio laid off 12 quality assurance contractors in early December, with their last day set for January 28th. The layoffs prompted several dozen workers across the company to strike in protest in an action that lasted for several days. As a result of the company's inaction on voluntary recognition, the Game Workers Alliance has indicated that they will be taking the steps to file for an official union election with the National Labor Relations Board. In their statement regarding the movement towards an election, the organizations expressed their confidence that they would be certified. Quote, we are proud to file with the NLRB as we enjoy supermajority support for our union and know that together we will gain the formal recognition we have earned, read the Alliance's statement on the filing. Thanks to Scott McCullough for his contributions and advice for this report. For Madison Labor Radio, I'm Sean Hagerup. This week's COVID report includes reporting on national trends and cases and deaths. For the two-week period ending Sunday, January 23rd, the number of people hospitalized with COVID in Dane County hospitals was high but stable, with an average of 184 people hospitalized each day. Percent positivity was 18.3%, lower than the 21% reported a week ago. In Dane County, the trajectory is downward. 
Statewide, the COVID activity remains critically high, but the trend is also downward. Public Health Madison and Dane County is issuing face covering emergency order number seven, effective February 1st, immediately after the current order expires. This order mirrors the requirements of the previous order. The Dane County order requires face coverings among people aged two and older when in most enclosed spaces open to the public where other people are present. The order will expire March 1st. The N95 is a respirator approved by NIOSH in the United States to filter 95% or more of small particles. These masks are worn when dealing with dust during a do-it-yourself project. Hardware stores are a good source for N95 masks. N95 respirators have not been tested for broad use in children. KN95 is the Chinese equivalent of the N95 mask. They have similar filtering properties to an N95, but they are not tested or regulated by NIOSH. They are usually shaped like a clamshell with a vertical seam down the center. Regardless of vaccination status, if residents have been around someone who is COVID-19, they should get tested at least five days after exposure. Also, if symptoms occur, testing is recommended. Well, there are many testing sites in Dane County. For those without internet access, one source is Community Pharmacy at 130 South Fair Oaks Avenue. Tests are available Wednesdays through Thursday, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Call 608-251-4454 to make an appointment. At today's briefing from the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center, epidemiologist Jennifer Nuzzo spoke about the discouraging rise in the number of cases and encouraging trends in deaths among those infected with COVID. So this week we saw more than 4 million cases reported, which was 22% lower than the uh, previous week. Great, great news. But if we compare it to this time last year, the case count was just over a million cases reported the same week last year. So just to put into context how much higher the case numbers are um, in this surge than what we've seen uh, prior. The proportion of cases that are resulting in death this time around is much lower than what we saw this time last year. The UW-Madison encourages all students to receive their booster vaccine as soon as they are able. Vaccinations, including boosters, continue to provide the strongest possible protection against infection and serious illness. Appointments can be scheduled on campus through the My UHS app or web portal. In general, the UW asks all students to complete two tests, one before they return to Dane County and one after they arrive. In Dane County, 66.3% of fully vaccinated people aged 12 and older and 85.4% of fully vaccinated people aged 65 and older have received a booster or additional vaccine dose. If you need your booster, visit vaccines.gov or find a mobile vaccine clinic near you. Sources of information for today's story are Public Health Madison and Dane County, the Wisconsin Department of Health Services, the UW-Madison, and the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm William Rogeberg. Thanks to editors Frank Emsbach and Ellen LaLuzerne, assistant Robin G, reporters Greg Jaboski, Sean Hagerup, Anna Hom, Scott McCullough, Janine Ramsey, 
Tony Reeves, Carol Widell, and Damage Control Specialist Joanne Powers. Thank you as well to website editor J.J. Meyer, listener consultants Melissa Winters and David Watson. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, and to all of our readers and members of the IBEW Local 2304 WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Ann Habel. We'd also like to thank all of the generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for Dave Watts and the Blues Cruise. <laughs>